0: Hello and welcome to a Christmassy Rich Pickings, Fidelity's award-winning asset allocation podcast with me, Richard Edgar, in the City of London. Britain has a Conservative government, again, after a decisive election which gives Boris Johnson a powerful mandate. But what does it mean for investors? Indeed, how should portfolios adapt to shifting politics all over the world? Listen on to find out. Here in the London studio, almost ready for their Christmas breaks, are three of Fidelity's investment team. Wen, Wen Lindroth, lead cross-asset strategist, Amit Loder, a global equity portfolio manager, and Alex Lang, investment analyst covering industrials. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, are you feeling Christmassy yet? That's what I want to know. Uh, in fact, what I really want to know is what are you expecting or what are you hoping for from Santa? Wenwen? Wen.
1: Well, not that I think uh, we're going to get it, but I'd like world peace. And... Great. Let's, let... OK, <laughs> that, we'll that, just that'll stop do.
0: there. That'll do. That'll do. <laughs> Alex, what about you?
2: Well, um, it's my daughter's first Christmas this year, so I think Father Christmas is going to be in distributive rather than receiving mode. So um, I think I'll go for something uh, more cliched and I'll go for maybe some more civility in British politics now. OK, maybe some sleep as well. <laughs> um, and Amit, how about you?
3: Yeah, I'll go for something more personal. Um, You know, my grandfather is 97. Uh, my other grandparents are 92 and 80 So I'm going to wish for good health for the family
0: Absolutely, I think we can all agree with that Right, well we're recording this the morning after the night before The UK's latest general election And the Conservatives are returning to power With the biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher over three decades ago Nothing now will stop Britain leaving the European Union So, um, so let me start with your reaction to the news um, Wen Wen, any surprises for you?
1: Well, I'll just speak from the fixed income side. We feel that the outcome, which is a market-friendly outcome, was largely baked into the credit markets. Um, And so the UK sterling credit markets and also gilts have not responded too strongly, um, a little bit more risk on, but uh, all in all uh, baked in. We, in fact, think that the outcome of the election is more of an equity story.
0: Okay. well, let's
2: move over to equities then. Um, Alex, um, first of all, from you. I'm actually sort of modestly surprised by the scale of the reaction we've seen in some of the names so my my personal um uh, sort of coverage and exposure to the u k is pretty limited, and my companies are very global, so even their u k exposure is is quite small. But if I look across the equity space, you know a lot of these names are moving moving pretty hard and I'm surprised that even some of the big u k exporters, which are obviously going to get hit by the um the currency moves today, are sort reacting very positively, and I would have thought that given the polls were sort of predicting admittedly not as big a majority, but a majority nevertheless, that the most of that will be baked in. And I think it probably speaks to the the lack of trust that people have increasingly built up in polls and their predictive power. Mm.
0: Okay, Amit, how about you? Um, what's the impact on portfolios? Um, have you been making any changes this morning in in response?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, as Wenwen said, uh, these results are very equity market positive. Um, I think from my perspective, you know, I've been overweight the UK because of valuations. If you look at the the positioning of the general investors from a global context they've been very underweight the UK market in fact we did a survey uh, we saw a survey i think sometime in august uh, and the UK was the most underweight market globally so i think my perspective is that this is a really positive result you get uh, 5 years of political stability now which uh, which i think is at a significant premium to anywhere else in the world, you know, you, the U.S. will be going for elections. We've got, uh, you know, quite a lot of things going on in other parts of the world. So the U.K. will actually, very surprisingly, be an island of calm and uh, peace. Well,
0: that's a lovely way of looking at it. So I think he does have a five-year term, but um, this is Boris Johnson, and he's inheriting a fairly divided country. So th- there may well be quite a bit of tumult in that time, not least the withdrawal from the European Union.
3: Oh, well, absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. But I think what markets hate most than anything else is uncertainty. And now we have a path of exiting the European Union. Um, whether people may agree or disagree, I think the country has obviously voted in a particular direction. Now we will see execution on that path. I think it allows us to move the discussion away from Brexit towards more important things. Um, I think it is quite clear that we will you know, from a global perspective, I think there's a a move more towards uh, fiscal policy versus monetary policy. Okay,
0: okay. Well, I'm going to move us away from Brexit and and those things as well for now. We'll come back to them in just a moment. But we're going to take a longer view of where markets and the global economy are. Um, I spoke earlier to one of our multi-asset assistant portfolio managers, Ian Sampson. I'm sitting with Ian under the Christmas tree in the Fidelity canteen sort of metaphorically speaking anyway. Ian, happy Christmas to you. Um, As we approach the end of 2019, uh, what is going on with our proprietary models, in particular the Fidelity Leading
4: Indicator, the fly? So the Fidelity Leading Indicator is still in that top right quadrant, as we call it, which is where you want to be growth positive and accelerating, but what's interesting is even as markets get very, very much more optimistic about the, the prospects for a cyclical recovery, actually the, the fly growth reading is kind of plateauing out, leaving acceleration kind of drifting back down towards zero. So it seems like uh, we're reaching a bit, of a, a bit of a plateau. And what we find interesting is the growth seems to only be heading to about half as much of a cyclical upturn as what we saw in twelve thirteen and. 2016-17, those past two sort of mini-cycle. So this is a mini-mini upswing? A mini-mini upswing indeed. It's material and it's certainly a lot better than uh, what we've experienced this year, um, and it is consistent with earnings returning, uh, which is a, a theme that we're, we're really looking to play um, in, the, in the coming months, and maybe even throughout 2020. But it's important not to get too carried away and, and to put this in context.
0: So it's cautious optimism, um, maybe not a lot of enthusiasm around that optimism, is that right?
4: Well, it it all depends, um, and it depends um, how optimistic markets get, um, so there's no doubt that in my mind, growth will be reasonably solid next year and better than it was this year. But as long as markets don't get too far ahead of themselves, that's a good story. But you do need to just be a bit more cautious. Uh, just a bit more
0: detail on the, on the fly. Um, which of the components uh, that contribute to the overall figure, uh, which of those is particularly interesting? This month.
4: so business surveys continue to edge into that top right uh, which we hadn't seen for for quite some time so things like global pmis finally showing signs of bottoming and um, particularly in the the industrial sector and particularly outside the us and interestingly also in in commodities um, you're starting to see a broadening out of of green shoots again more in survey based indicators so the manufacturing
0: recession that we've been talking about that's coming to an end.
4: I think that is probably the case, yes. Um, and generally where industry goes, the service sector tends to follow. So while you could still see some softening in, in the consumer, say in the US, as we head into twenty twenty, and you know, some cyclical weakness in, in service sectors, generally we'd expect them to pick up with a two or three month lag after the pickup in manufacturing begins.
0: Right, so that's the, the near term forecast, but tis the season, Ian, to be asking economists like you to look into your crystal ball and tell us, perhaps this time next year, where would you be putting your money?
4: Well, that will all depend on the outcome of the first uh, bilateral between President Bernie Sanders and Xi Jinping. as they try trying to, uh... well, of course, what I mean by that is that the outcome of the US election will be incredibly important. And um, that will certainly set um, market sentiment. But I think what's interesting is if we only do get this half a cyclical upturn, and I think that's quite likely to be the story of next year, given the limited policy response that we've seen this year, given that there is a lack of spare capacity in, in economies, as we come to the end of 2020 and look into 2021, we might actually be on the, the cusp of another downturn, but with bond yields still quite low and some really limited scope for, for yeah another round of monetary easing to, to keep the cycle going just that bit longer. Um, so that might be the story as we start looking into 2021. Ian, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank
3: you, Richard.
0: Right, Amit, you're a global equity investor. Um, does what Ian had to say there make you optimistic for the year ahead?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there are quite a few things to look forward to. I think we have PMIs starting to bottom out. I think you are likely to see an inventory restocking cycle, which should generally be more positive for earnings. Um, So, you know, over 2019, most of the market gains have been driven by multiple expansion, which is, you know, earnings haven't gone anywhere, but markets have gone up. Hopefully, we get a catch up in that in 2020. So I think all the things that Ian mentioned should give us a little bit more optimism. For market direction in 2020.
0: Well, when, when earnings returning, um, that's the, the sort of phrase that Fidelity is, is going with, really, in, in our outlook for, for 2020. Um, what, what are the drivers that you see for that?
1: Uh, well, to echo uh, what Ahmed is saying, earnings are looking to go up uh, in 2020. Um, and specifically, we're going to be taking a closer look at energy, tech, and U.S. consumer discretionary as the three areas where our estimates are, are going up substantially. So 2020 does pose sort of a easier comp versus 2019 than 2019 did versus 2018. So we should acknowledge that part of it is just because 2019 earnings were uh, Week or slightly down versus the previous year, 2018, having been supported by U.S. tax reform uh, and the inventory cycle as well. From a bigger picture perspective, um, if indeed the manufacturing sector is plateauing out, we could start to see some strength in revenues. Um, through that mechanism. Also, very importantly, with uh, coordinated central bank easing around the world, that supports housing markets. And in particular, um, that is the mechanism for easier rates in the U.S. and China to feed through to the real economy. So with easier monetary policy in those two big countries, as well as some fiscal stimulus and easier policies um, on housing in China in particular, that should feed through the property sector and then all of the implications beyond that.
0: Okay, and all of you have mentioned manufacturing, so I, I must come to you, Alex, and, uh, and ask you about it. Do you um, agree, you're seeing that, the, the, you know, is it a strong um, recovery from um, the manufacturing recession, or is it still
2: early days? Uh, so my view was always that this this down cycle we've seen would be more of a sort of a, m- a mid cycle correction, you know, particularly as as Amit was saying, sort of inventory led. I didn't feel that there was a real structural reason necessarily why manufacturing would go into a downturn. And actually, if you look at many uh, sort of historical metrics, things like uh, capital intensity in, in the developed market is still actually relatively low, and they're sort of sitting, you know, not a huge amount recovered from from the deep industrial recession we saw in 2015 on the back of the oil crisis. So I felt that the downturn wouldn't be that severe. And I I have some sympathy with with Ian's view that, as a result, the sort of upcycle probably doesn't reach the the heights we've seen in in some previous examples. I think from an equities perspective... There are odd nuances to being an industrials analyst. And if you look historically, you only really make positive returns when uh, growth is negative and you buy at that point. And actually, if you buy when growth is very good, generally, actually, your returns are quite poor because these are naturally mean reverting uh, cycles. So when things are very good, at some point, they're going to get worse and, and vice versa. And I think that means it's actually quite a difficult time from that perspective, because 2018 was a year of, as they called at the time, synchronized global growth, and the sector didn't work. 2019 has been a year of downgrades, and the sector's actually worked very well because it's re-rated into those downgrades. And we now sit at a point where I feel like it's already anticipating those those upgrades to come, and it's which stocks are going to be able to at least hold their rating while the upgrades come through, or which, let's say, de-rate while those upgrades flow into numbers. So I think it's a much, much more difficult um, transition at the moment, really, from an equity picking perspective. Well, it means you are having to earn your crust.
3: Can I make a point uh, here? Yes. Just, um, I think if you. You know, take a slightly wider lens view and a longer term view, I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is basically secular stagnation, which we've tried to fight with monetary policy. I think now there is consensus that monetary policy is not working anymore. And as Wenwen was saying, fiscal policy is more likely to come into the mix. Now, fiscal policy really does work with growth coming back. Um, what we've also seen is what's done well over the past few years is defensive areas of the market, whereas cyclical areas like Alex's haven't done that well. But if you get fiscal policies really coming together, and I think the UK is going to be a good test bed for that, um, you could actually see secular stagnation in the rear view, which would be very market positive and which would be very earnings positive. So I think that's what we should be focusing on in terms of what are the fiscal measures that governments around the world would start thinking about versus you know the, the focus on central banks that we've had for the last 10 years.
0: And their ammunition is largely spent. So there's been lots of talk, for example, here in the UK. um, Both of the main parties were talking about fiscal stimulus to different degrees. How much faith do you have that what the Conservatives are actually um, promising will translate into um, real growth in the economy?
3: Yeah, that's a billion-dollar question because first how many billions? <laughs> yeah, first they have to execute on the promise, yeah, uh, which is always questionable. But I think the consensus, both from the far right and from the far left, is on the same direction, which is that you need you know, you need spending to kickstart growth because corporates are not feeling bullish enough to spend. So the government has to spend. And I think that direction, I think, is, is positive. There will definitely be more to do on the infrastructure side. Um, you know, the, the conservators have talked a lot about that. There, there'll be definitely more to do on on general public uh, welfare healthcare nhs so you will see you know quite a few sectors of the economy starting to gain from from this spending push you know sectors which have not done well at all because they've suffered for the last 10 years because of austerity
0: alex when you think about your companies which are uh, vulnerable to political whims how much effect do you think it would have on them? Or is this something that is going to be, you know, m- happening more in infrastructure or uh, something like that?
2: Well, I mean, I think that the um, the, the market is, is a pretty uh, interconnected web and trying to say, well, infrastructural benefit doesn't only benefit the infrastructure players because it feeds down into the contractors or the EPC guys, onto the equipment manufacturers, onto the distributors that are selling that equipment. So I have no doubt that that if we do move into a world of, you know, Greater uh, fiscal stimulus, for want of a better word, that unquestionably affects my sector, and my sector has, you know, has many stocks. I think that, that feed into that, and I think there are there are new means to sort of direct. I think government policy. I mean, I, I do think that moves towards a sort of green, you know, green deals. Uh, the, the recent green budget in Germany set standards for infrastructure targets that have very sizable implications. I mean, if you take the rail sector for example, we've Seen, you know, Greta Thunberg um, sailing across the Atlantic because she doesn't want to catch a flight, and we have seen like genuine reductions in, in particular, the Nordic countries, thanks to to flight shame, and the German government have sort of taken that on board. You know, they've they've cut VAT on rail tickets. I think from something like 19 to about seven percent. They've promised an extra billion spending in rail infrastructure every year, and so for a company that sells trains. You know, there are a number of those in, in, in Europe. That's a, that's a direct feed into, into potentially a, yeah, a fiscally led market. That's quite a European picture, though, isn't it? Uh, Wenwen, if I ask you
0: about the states, um, 2020 is an election year, and there are two very different palettes of, uh, of, of colours um, being being offered, politically speaking, by the, uh, the Democrats as opposed to, uh, to Donald Trump. How are you approaching um, this year and what might happen in November?
1: Well, I think that um, whoever gets into office is going to be more pro-spending. The general consensus is that the U.S. does need fiscal stimulus to keep growth going. And there's been a long period of underinvestment in infrastructure in the U.S. um, that needs to be addressed. So um, we know that Trump is, uh, likes infrastructure spending, uh, the Democrats do as well, and that contingent of Republicans who were more focused on balancing the budget have really waned in their power. So, you know, given that the likely outcome of the 2020 election in November is either going to be Trump or a Democrat, um, I would expect there to be some substantial spending Either uh, way. going forward. Either yeah.
2: way. But I, th- I think there's m- it's more than, um, you know, we're talking about this fiscal push as a sort of a repercussion of the fact that monetary stimulus has lost legs or was, I suppose, arguably even working in the first place. I think there's there's a there's a more political angle to this. I think it's a political necessity to push greater fiscal spending because we've been discussing a lot recently about this sort of political divisiveness in society and i think that that old washington consensus of uh, a, a private enterprise and corporate led world is is fading in the wake of uh, you know huge i think public anger in many cases against that sort of you know laissez-faire economics and i think there has to be i think there has to be a response to that you know on the left side of the spectrum, that's state intervention. you know we've seen that with the, the labor sort of and you know nationalizing targets, but I think even on the on the right there's going to have to be an acceptance that that Thatcherite uh, Reagan approach no longer no longer works in a modern but world. What unites
0: both the left and the right is a rise of populism uh, of, of populist policies that have different drivers altogether they're not like the old way of, of thinking. Companies must
2: be positioning themselves for that they, they, they can't uh, they can't ignore it. I think it's very difficult from a company perspective, because um, and sort of talked about uncertainty and, and the markets, um, you know, poor uncertainty, I think corporates do to the same extent, it's very difficult to prepare for populism when you don't know what that populism is going to entail. And the populism of let's say, Spain is very different to the populism of the United States. So are companies preparing? I mean, I think they're doing their best to prepare, but I wouldn't say that they're well set up to deal with the, the challenges that might be, uh, might be coming in the next few years. I Amit, mean, how do you prepare when you look at an
0: entire portfolio um, uh, as you see the political uh, landscape changing around you? Is it something that you can, you can position for?
3: I think, um, you know, Alex makes some great points. And if you think about the next decade, you know, this decade, country selection has not been that important. But I think given we are moving into a world where there is more fiscal stimulus, you know, what governments do, what policies governments have, the intervention from politicians becomes a lot more important. And therefore, I think country selection will become a lot more important. I think if you are thinking about, uh, you know, things from a company perspective, I would say, you know, just backing what Alex said, we need to be very careful of companies, which we may like today because they are making supernormal profits, which you would call you know some of these unregulated monopolies. But I think they risk significant regulation from governments because they are in the crosshairs of all the things that that we talked about in terms of populism. So well, technology is an obvious one. Technology in the is exactly yeah. an obvious one. So so I think we as investors need to be very careful to understand the impact of politics on companies, something that we may not have been doing too much of over the last 10 years. But it's a skill set that I think we need to be thinking a lot more about, developing a lot more as, as things go along.
1: Populism could be good, and it can be bad for corporates. It, it, it could be a double-edged sword, really. Um, and So, on so good one, for whom? Well, I mean, it would be good from a top-line perspective if fiscal stimulus... For example, in the U.S., you know, spurs more spending on bridges, roads, infrastructure, greenification of the economy. Utilities,
3: for example.
1: Utilities yeah, and those stocks energy. have done very well this year, yeah. indeed. And so if we can generate inflation and growth through fiscal stimulus government investment, that's really positive for the economy and for corporates. Um, But populism, on the other hand, is also going to probably take a good look at the margins and the um, allocation of profits between capital and labor. Um, So we've already seen wages going up in the U.S. this year, and I think that's a trend that's going to just continue apace. Um, no matter what happens, because of populism and because of the declining share that labor has taken over the last couple of decades. So from a margin perspective and also potentially from a valuation perspective, we could see pressure on corporates. Uh, But then we may eventually see other valuation methods for investors to pick their stocks.
0: Um, So that's a that's a whole different um, ballgame, isn't it?
3: Yeah, the the thing is that I think the point that Wen Wen makes um, is, is, is very valid, because I think what you will see in the market is a rotation. So you know, markets may stay flat. But under the hood, you might see cyclical sectors doing a lot better, you know, those which gain from from all the policies that she's mentioned, and the sector that have done well so far, because we've been in this secular, stagnated world, may actually not do that well if fiscal stimulus really is a success in driving growth.
0: We are now going to play Hot Cakes and Hot Potatoes, our fantastic rich pickings parlor game. Uh, What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Amit, your hot cake,
3: first of all. A hot cake has to be where we stand today, UK. Um, I think, you know, all the three things that I look at in terms of uh, valuations, low, Um, earnings, revisions, potential, if confidence comes back high and general market sentiment is pretty low positioning is pretty low so you know uk is, is my hot cake you make a year.
0: convincing case and your hot potato what would you drop
3: i would say that i'd need to be really careful with with bonds uh, government bonds especially because if 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 uh, if politicians have got the keys to the kingdom and start spending. I'd be careful with trusting them with my money and government bonds are that.
0: Well you've got one guy with the keys to the kingdom today here yes. in the UK so he's got a whopping majority let's <laughs> see what he does with it. When Wen, you've just uh, had fixed income put in the in the in Amit's uh, worry bucket. Um, what, first of all, what are your well, hot cakes?
1: For, fortunately, we've got a lot to choose from within fixed income. So I would actually echo what uh, Ahmet says in terms of shorting government bonds, specifically the euro at a negative yield still um, that just simply cannot hold over the, over the long term. In terms of what I like, I will make the argument that today we are at peak confidence, peak Comfort levels and potentially, uh, you know, the, this is sort of baked into valuation um, based on the good news that we've had from the UK easing in the US trade uh, negotiations, etc. So there's been a lot of good news, and I think we're at peak confidence. So to make a long story short, I would be a buyer of volatility with VIX at around 13 today um, and then two other longs, um, still like uh, inflation, 10 year break evens at 173 versus our estimate of. CPI next year at an average of 2.3%. So um, inflation break even still uh, undervalued. And then lastly, um, I like Asian high yield on um, valuation and also continued support from um, central banks from around the world and from China.
0: So that's three hotcakes. It's meant to be one, but it's Christmas (laughs) when
2: when, So I'll let you off.
1: Thank
2: you. Uh, Okay, Um, Alex, how about you? Your hotcakes? if we are moving into a world of of greater fiscal spending, that's a very inflationary driver, as one of them was saying. But at the same time, I think monetary policy has to stay loose given the debt sort of um, load we still have in society. So a world of, of high inflation and still low rates, I think, sets up interesting dynamics. I think on the potato side, I mean, I would have... My my potato side was certainly going to be the same. I mean, non sort of inflation-linked government bonds. But given that's been said twice, I think for a bit of diversity, maybe I'll I'll move into the equity markets and say, uh, you know, bond-like equities without pricing power. So maybe something like a telco sector, mm-hmm. and then the the inverse of that. I think you want to have you know real assets that pro- have sort of inflationary protection, where you you don't have a sort of um, mm-hmm. Uh, an income, effectively, so you're, you're not be, you're not losing out on a real rate. So I, that would make me a natural gold bull. Um, and again, to sort of align that to my equity stance, I'll say then I'll buy some, uh, the better gold miners out there. <laughs> the better gold miners. A, a small group, perhaps, but uh, but there we go. OK, that brings
0: us to the end of this month's show. Thank you very much indeed to my guests, Wenwen, Amit, Alex, and we heard from Ian earlier. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. If you've liked what you've heard, then please do subscribe and rate us on your podcast app. And why not try our sister podcast, for. Answers where, amongst other things, you can find our Investor's Guide to China series as well as our research podcast. And in the latest episode of that, our analysts are fresh from a trip to Silicon Valley. It's an enlightening discussion. Subscribe to Fidelity Answers. Thank you for listening. Until next year, goodbye.